Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today. Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prey. Eric Scopel is with me as always. We've got a good show for you. We're going to talk about Oregon basketball landing a big grad transfer this weekend over Easter. We're going to t- discuss the WNBA draft, which is coming up on Friday. And then we're also going to dive into some defensive football talk on the, uh, for the Oregon Duck football program and uh, why this group could be better, even though Troy died, Mr. Do everything for Oregon the last four seasons is now gone and a couple other seniors are gone. Why this group could be significantly better than they were last year. Uh, all coming up here on the Ots and Audibles podcast. Before we dive into that, I just want to remind you guys, if you are a subscriber, thank you very much. If you're not, you could join in for as low as $1 for your first month and then it goes $9.95 thereafter. Or you could pay for an annual membership a one-time payment of $75.18. That comes with a seven-day free trial. Inside scoop, expert analysis, and opinion. Read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network by subscribing to DuckTerritory.com. And on top of that, I want to remind you guys out there that if you're paying the, tra- the traditional price, $9.95 per month, or if you're paying the, an- the annual membership at its normal price, price, you get CBS All Access for free. That's a streaming platform that has all of CBS's shows, a ton of movies. It's got sports. All of it's commercial free. It's on demand. You can stream it on your computer, your tablet, your phone, your TV. Uh, great, great product. It's, a, it's got a $100 value that comes with it for free for your membership at DuckTerritory.com. All right. Over Easter weekend, uh, Easter actually, Amari Hardy announced that he was going to grad transfer to the University of Oregon. This is a guy that's played his first three years of basketball at UNLV, was a three-star prospect, had a couple Power Five offers coming out of the Detroit, Michigan area a couple years ago, and showed up at UNLV and as a true freshman played in 33 games, about eight, about 19 minutes a game. You know, was a, was a solid contributor off the bench, five points, 1.6 assists, solid, you know, rotation guy. And then the last two seasons, he's exploded into one of the better, I guess, mid-major type guards in the country. He averaged 13 points as a, as a sophomore. And then this past season, he shot, he made 14 and a half points per game, 3.3 rebounds, 3.3 assists, uh, kind of a, a do everything type of player for the running rebels. And Eric, you watched his tape. Once he committed, and just kind of what were your initial reactions from this? He kind of reminds me a little bit of Elijah Brown 
in that he's like an undersized off guard lefty who shoots the three ball a lot of threes and he shoots them and he kind of gets either he gets hot and he has a really high percentage like some of the games he's hitting you know four out of seven four out of eight a couple other games he's you know that two for eight two for six variety so he's a kind of a high volume shooter but he's definitely more athletic at least based on what I saw than Elijah Brown was from a couple of years ago he can get to the rim he's he's not a three-point only kind of shooter. Um, you look at he took six three-point shots a game, but he, he took 12 and a half total field goals. So there is some uh, ability to score from two-point range, which I think is attractive. Again, he's left-handed. He's, he's a lot more agile, I think, than what Elijah Brown was in terms of he gets the ball on the dribble. He can get to places on the court a little bit more effectively, a little bit more willing of a passer, as you see based upon his numbers at UNLV. Uh, almost four assists as a sophomore and then three this last year. Um, I think that's a little bit, a little bit more of an overall all around player. Uh, I don't think he looks like somebody who's like an, an outstanding defensive player, but offensively, like you said, I think he's going to be a player who has the potential to be high volume scorer, either as a starter, as a player coming off the bench, but for sure you're adding somebody who has a scorer's mentality. And when you lose a guard like Peyton Pritchard, who had an incredible ability to go find a bucket, I think bringing in a player like Hardy makes a ton of sense in terms of trying to at least find ways to replace that. Obviously, he's not the replacement for Peyton Pritchard and won't play even close to a similar role probably. But having guys on the roster that are capable of having that ability, I think is certainly beneficial after losing a player like Pritchard. Yeah, I think this is a no-brainer commitment. Like the only thing I wrote on the site last week, you know, is Oregon slower uh, or, or less active in the, the spring recruitment track, you know, transfer market than they've been previously? And I, I thought so. They were being ultra selective because once they took Aaron Estrada, the St. Mary uh, St. Peter's transfer freshman, you know, the MAAC freshman of the year. Once they took his commitment, Oregon basically had one spot left of, of available scholarships. And now with Hardy, they're, they, they have no more room to add any players. So if they add someone, it means someone currently on the roster is not coming. Um, and so, but before Hardy, they, they could be very selective with who they were going after. And they, and, you know, I, I looked at it as they needed to find somebody if they were going to add a player, whether it was a high school recruit, a junior college recruit, uh, a, a grad transfer, someone that has instant impact potential, a guy that, that will instantly make Oregon better. And I look at Hardy as an Elijah Brown, but I I see that comparison. I bring up Jason Kleist, a guy who played three years at Detroit. Was His numbers were never really crazy good. But he had to carry a team by himself or with one other guy. He had to be the guy, and every defense was focused on him. And that was the case for Hardy at UNLV, where going into into each game, the UNLV opponent basically said, we have to stop Hardy. If we stop Hardy, we stop UNLV. At Oregon, that's not going to be the case. Hardy probably won't be Oregon's primary option. He probably won't be their secondary option. And – all of a sudden, you've you've taken a guy who was sol- a solid number one and placed him probably as your number three, and you've got a really, really, really good third scorer now who can create his own shot. He can create for others. He can, can he can hit three pointers. 
Is he elite? Uh, is he an elite three point shooter? No. I mean, he he makes thirty two point nine percent of his of his threes over his three year career. I mean, that's that's not all conference numbers. But again, he's had to be the guy. I mean, he's had to create his own shot. He's had to rely on other people. What's he going to be like as a shooter when he's not going against an opponent's best wing defender? And is rolling off screens and is getting clean looks at the at, at the hoop. What what kind of an impact is he going to make? I think we could probably. I'm going to make a, a really. This maybe is a hot take prediction here, Ooh. but I I bet you Amari Hardy is going to have some career numbers shooting the basketball at Oregon next season. From a three point percentage, I think that would make a fair amount of sense. And you're right. And this is the trend you do see sometimes. And you kind of look at some of the guys, or I've already mentioned Elijah Brown, you mentioned Jason Kleist, um, uh, even like an Anthony Mathis recently. You bring a guy who's maybe a, has to carry a larger role at a smaller school from a three point percentage perspective of he's taking all the big shots. The ball is in his hand and the shot clock, he has to be the one to put that up. Well, you go from having that kind of a role and a percentage that is representative of that, a guy who's, like you said, about a 33% career three point shooter. You put him in a, a system or a situation where he's not the primary guy, and his three-point percentage could go through the roof. I always think back to this is a little bit of a little bit back in, back in the day, but Tawan Porter, his freshman year at Oregon, I think he set like the school record for three-point percentage, or at least it was close. Hit a bunch of threes, because that was largely because Aaron Bro- Aaron Brooks was you know handling the ball. They had Bryce Taylor, Malik Harrison, yep. and Porter was kind of like that fourth option. Well, the next year you see what happens when he has to be the one. Uh, you know, kind of triggering the offense, and those numbers continue to go down. And I, and I don't obviously this is kind of the inverse of what ha- would happen with Hardy, but Hardy could have three years at UNLV where he was largely expected to kind of be one of the primary options. Well, he comes to Oregon, and and this is probably a good transition into this, but maybe he comes to Oregon and he's not even a starter at Oregon, and he comes off the bench and he's just that microwave scorer who can get really hot, and you see that percentage go from you know low 30s to high 30s to maybe somewhere in the 40s. Um, do you think he's a starter at Oregon? Are they bringing no. him in with? Oh, yeah, okay. Well, what, what do you yeah, think his I, role is? I, I think Kalise shows up. This is up with the understanding. Or Kalise, uh Hardy shows up. This is with the understanding that we're looking at Oregon's roster as it currently is. There's no defections. And I've kind of tapped around this multiple times. But currently, right now, we project no one leaves the program. That could change. And if it does, I think Hardy, with I doubt, is going to be a starter because if someone leaves, he probably gets put into the lineup. But if we're at April 13th and Oregon's roster is full at 13, he is the sixth man. He is – I really think he is Jason Kalise 2.0 because you look at Hardy and you say, all right, the starting lineup, Will Richardson is the point guard. You've got Chris Duarte coming back for his senior year. He is your shooting guard. And then Eric Williams, the Duquesne transfer, who averaged 14 and 7, a really good athlete, bigger player. He will be your small forward. Eugene Umari is your starting power forward. The Rutgers transfer, who averaged 13 and 7 as a junior. And then you've also got uh, a center position, which could be Enfali Dante. It, it, it could be Chandler Lawson. It, it could be Francis Socorro, whoever. That's that's your starting lineup. I think Hardy steps in as the sixth man, and this alleviates a lot of pressure and serves as some insurance. Like, let's say 
a guard. Let's say Chris Duarte decides I'm going to go pro. I want to test myself. I want to I want to go pro. Hardy is the insurance of that happening. Or if Will Richardson says I want to go pro, you now have insurance for that. If a projected starter leaves, you've got a bona fide starter that can come in right away and fill that hole. If if everyone comes back, you've now got your your sixth man, you've now got your top reserve guard off the bench, and this alleviates the pressures that that would fall on Jalen Terry, the four star point guard. Who maybe Jalen Terry shows up and is a superstar like everyone thinks he's gonna be and is capable of running the point. Will Richardson is now at his best as the two. Crystal Duarte is your is your three. Eric Williams comes off, and now you've got a, you know a super deep bench. But what happens if if Jalen Terry isn't ready for the prime time, and you you basically can expect to get ten minutes out of him per game? Now you have Amari Hardy who gives you the capability of of backing up Will Richardson or backing up Crystal Duarte. And what's now essentially happened is I don't think Oregon has to ask anyone to do what Peyton Pritchard has done the last three seasons at Oregon and basically be an Iron Man and play almost every single minute of every single game at a high level. Now you can tell everybody, look, we just need you to play 27 minutes, 26 minutes, because we've got viable candidates behind you that can pick up the slack and and can play really good basketball for 15, 18, 20 minutes per game. I think, I think last year, Oregon finished kind of adding pieces to the roster in like August or July, something like that, late summer. Does it feel, it feels kind of like Oregon's roster is set mid-April right now, and, and obviously they can't add anyone unless someone leaves. Uh, what, what are the benefits for Oregon if, if this is in fact the kind of final roster and kind of what can this allow them to do in the interim where you think about the last couple of years, they've certainly been at least kind of scrambling or, or, or at least looking for other prospects as late in the, you know, later on in the summer. Yeah, 100%. I mean, they're done unless someone leaves. Like that's, that's the only thing. And maybe, maybe they know someone's leaving and it's status quo and they're continuing to recruit. But as of now, they're, they're not going to add any new pieces because they can't. Anything that anyone that they add is going to be a walk on because they don't have any available scholarships at this current moment. Now, I think this has been in the mix for a couple of months now where Oregon was going to put themselves into this position where if you notice and you go back to the season, Oregon did a lot of their recruiting on future classes, like the 2020 class, like, they added Jalen Terry, and then that's about it And for 2020. And everyone was kind of like, when, when are they going to add somebody? When are they going to add somebody? And I think they they viewed it as they've already done that. They they When they added Eugene Omari and Eric Williams and decided to redshirt Luke Wurr as a, as a freshman before this past season, that was their 2020 recruiting class. And then they went out and said, we need to find a point guard. Once they found that and Jalen Terry, things dried up there. And then it was, we're not going to add any more pieces until after the season's over. And we look at the grad transfer market, see what's out there. And they've now added Amari Hardy. And they've also added Aaron Estrada, who has to redshirt for next year. And from basically December and some of last summer, 
and now all up until the the, the COVID nineteen stuff happened, their focus has been on recruiting twenty twenty one guys, and so a lot of schools were still recruiting twenty twenty maybe dabbling a little bit into 2021, and now that COVID's happened and everything's shut down and there's no evaluations going on, Oregon's got all this legroom done already. They've evaluated guys. They've they've been in to see them at school. They've been at their high school games. They've been at their AAU games. And they've got a leg up and have a lot of information on the 2021 class already done and filed for their services when most schools are just trying to put stuff together without any information, new information out there. Yeah, certainly, this, I, that's kind of what I was getting at. It, it seems like, especially with the uncertainty recruiting right now, it seems like Oregon has placed themselves in a really good spot to kind of build towards the future with, yes, again, with with this strange scenario here where a Dana Altman coach team, it's, it's mid-April, and it looks like on paper at least that this could be what the roster looks like in November, and uh, certainly I think really exciting, and you have to be encouraged by, you look at now, if this is what the roster looks like, it's a pretty darn veteran team with some of these transfers that they've added, um, with actually returning everybody they really could have apart from a couple of seniors who graduated, obviously. Um, I think I think on paper this this could be a really exciting group. I know maybe it doesn't have that, that star potential, that top NBA draft pick potential that you've seen from the last couple of years, but it seems like a group that fills all the holes and there are a lot of veteran experienced players who have had uh, proven that they can contribute at this level, whether it be at Oregon or other places. I think you have to be pretty excited with what they put together for sure uh, in this class. I, I look at this roster as it is and think they're the Pac-12 favorites because we've finally seen what can happen if you build some continuity because a lot of schools, Arizona's reloading with grad transfers, and they've got a couple big freshmen coming in. USC is doing the same thing. They're reloading with grad transfers, and they've got some big freshmen coming in. Uh, Arizona State, they will be much like Oregon. I think those are the two teams, in my mind, Arizona State and Oregon are going to be the favorites in the conference because, and, and maybe UCLA as well, but those three schools compared to everybody else, they're reloading some key pieces, but they're, you know, top two or three players, or, you know, if, if you look at their six, top six guys in the rotation, four of them aren't newcomers. Like, the, the thing with Oregon is, yes, Peyton Pritchard's gone, and the All-American is gone, and that's going to be tough to replace, but you look at your projected starting lineup, and all five guys in that starting lineup were in practice, on the roster during the 2019-2020 season. Yes, Eugene Umari and Eric Williams were transfers and were not eligible to play, and so we still don't definitively know their roles, but they went through an entire season of learning the offense, learning the defense, knowing the defensive rotations, going through the practice grind, and picking things up. This, this coming year, it won't be their first time learning the intricacies of the matchup zone that Oregon runs or the press break or the traps that Oregon does. They've done it before. And everybody else is going to have one, two, three, sometimes even four new faces in their starting lineup trying to 
adapt and learn on the fly, whereas Oregon and Colorado, uh, excuse me, Arizona State and UCLA won't be doing that. They all bring back a majority of their team. And I think Oregon's the Pac-12 favorite next year, even though Pritchard's gone. And they still have the best head coach in the program. They've got upperclassmen. And this is what it goes to your point, Eric, of the team is setting themselves up long-term-wise because the turnover, if they if they can get this one more year, the, the roster turnover is going to be significantly less than what it has been in previous seasons. And the time when Oregon turns that corner during the middle of the year happens sooner. And it's, it's usually January, maybe early February, because, you know, the, for most of Dana Altman's time at Oregon, he's had to retool his roster every single year. And that won't be the case next season. And so it wouldn't surprise me if this team comes out in 2020, 2021, early on, plays better, plays more connected, and all of a sudden, it, they're they're playing elite level basketball in December or in early January, opposed to late January, early February. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And while the women's basketball team didn't add anybody this week to the roster. We do have some news to track this week because the WNBA draft kicks off on Friday. ESPN, I believe, 4 p.m. Pacific time, was originally scheduled to be broadcast on ESPN2. And then, look, maybe it's a pure coincidence, but 
Sabrina Inescu tweeted that this should be on ESPN and not ESPN2, <laughs> and like a day or two later, it was moved to ESPN. Um, what's the latest right now, Eric, for this team and mock draft news? I know a couple mocks have come out recently. Has there been any change for, from a projection standpoint for, for Oregon's big three? Before we start, I just want to say this is like the first time I've ever been this invested in a WNBA draft. And it's actually like, I mean, like for real though, I, mean, I think last year we kind of like followed it a little bit because Maite Cazorla was set to be picked and she got taken, I think, in the second round. Um, but like whenever have we, when else have we ever cared about a WNBA draft really? I mean, I think if you're an Oregon women's basketball fan, that's just the reality. It's aside from last year and there was some interest about where Maite was going to go, that there hasn't been really much of an opportunity or a reason to care too much. But uh, that will certainly change this week. And again, if you're not a big women's basketball fan, uh, you miss out on a great season, but there isn't actual sports going on. And this WNBA draft this week actually feels really significant in terms of what is actually going on out there. And Oregon is going to be at the center of this because uh, there are three former Oregon players that are going in the first round, and two of them could go uh, first and second. And I, I just pulled up, before we started doing this, uh, five different mock drafts, and it's, it, it's interesting because I didn't realize there'd be that many for the WNBA draft because, again, I didn't recognize kind of what the uh, following around it is. But there's actually quite a bit out there in terms of draft projections. And if you look at the five I, I looked at, four of those five have Sabrina going number one to the New York Liberty. I think that's like you can write that in stone. I think she probably already figured out her housing over there. And that's probably been something that they've done for a while because I can tell you that even in early February and January, there were people from the New York Liberty attending games from the marketing team there. Assuming I'm assuming they were there to, to work on some sort of getting photos, getting to know her, trying to find ways to, to build what will be the brand of their the face of their program going forward. So that's already been kind of in the works for a while. But Satu potentially being the second overall pick to the Dallas Wings um, is kind of something that's developed more recently. I think in in previous mock drafts, even leading up to this month. It was kind of like she's going to be the third to fifth pick, somewhere in that range. And Lauren Cox, who is a hometown player from that Dallas area, obviously started at Baylor. Oregon fans remember her well from the Final Four a couple of years ago. She kind of felt like a lock to go number two. But there has been a shift, and four out of those five have Satsu now number two to the Dallas Wings. And that is now starting to feel more and more like that will probably be what takes place on Friday. Obviously, a lot of things can change. One of the things we should note is that the Wings have, like, four first-round draft picks. So they could package those picks, and maybe they – I don't think they're going to move up to pick Sabrina, but maybe they package those picks for some sort of blockbuster trade, and that throws everything off. And whoever is then picking second maybe isn't as high on Satsu or is more high on Lauren Cox or someone else. But um, certainly some intrigue there. And then the third player, Ruthie Hebert, her stock, her stock, I would say, has kind of dropped a little bit, but she's certainly a player that's going to be uh, taken in the first round. And, and again, for those that haven't followed WNBA drafts, it's not a 30-team first round because there are only 12 teams. It's a 12-player first round, 12-player second round, 12-player third round. Um, so if it's a 36-player draft. And uh, Oregon, again, having three players in a 30-player first round would be one thing, but having three players taken in a 12-player first round, which is basically like an NBA lottery, uh, is, is also very impressive. So that's kind of where things are now in terms of you can expect Sabrina to go number one, Sachi to go number two, with Ruthie probably going somewhere in the 7 to 12 range, kind of at the back end of that first round. I'm curious to see. I've kind of bantered this around a couple times with you. 
Um, I think I've said it on the podcast and on the site as well once or twice, but I'm really intrigued just to go back or in three years, go back to this draft and see Sawtooth Sabu's development. I, I honestly think she might be the best of the bunch of, of, from Morgan's standpoint. So I, I think Sabrina, you have name power, you have instant superstar status to your roster. Um, you know, the off the court awareness that Sabrina is going to bring mm-hmm. to your franchise is through the roof. But I wonder in three or four years, could, could Satu on the court maybe exceed what Sabrina does? I think that is absolutely a, a kind of fair thing to throw out there. And obviously everyone is, is aware that as a collegiate player, Sabrina was Satu's superior. Um, but Satu has incredible intangibles at six foot four and she's left-handed. I mean, just being six foot four and left-handed gives you an advantage over most players on the court. But when you throw in the fact that you can put the ball on the floor and get to the rim, that if you have, if you do catch it around the basket, you're very capable that you can shoot the three point shot and a mid range shot. She's very versatile offensively. And then defensively, I think she's, I think that could be almost where she's more effective because with her length and her athleticism, I mean, that, that is, that is scary. And we started to see that come together at Oregon sort of towards the end of the season. I thought she played her best basketball over kind of the last couple months. I know a Pac-12 tournament wasn't probably her best run of games, but overall, like you look at the kind of the mid-February to the end of the season there, really, really played at a high level. And defensively, I thought it was really, really outstanding as well. So I think you're right. I think there is potential for that to, to take place is, is that you look back and say, man, and, and maybe you look back and go like, this is further proof of why this Oregon team was was so so much the favorite and it's such a bummer that they didn't get to play the NCAA tournament is that you could be looking up in three years from now and looking at two players are all-star caliber players in the WNBA that were on this roster, and that's not even including Ruthie Hebert, who was probably, at least towards the end of the season, almost like the more productive player from that group in terms of just being a reliable, she was going to go out and get you 20 points and about 10 rebounds and probably make about every single shot she put up, so... Certainly, you're, I think you bring up a really valid point about what Satsu could develop into, and it could be that she's a better pro player than she was a collegiate player. Um, I know that makes sense, but I think she could develop into a very, very, very good pro player. And again, if she's with this Dallas Wings team, which has all of these young players, that could be kind of a fun team to, to follow going forward with all that youth. Real quick, why do you think Ruthie and her stock has dipped a little bit? And is it fair concern for that to, to have happened. I think there might be some concerns about is is she going to be able to, I guess, duplicate and replicate a lot of the things that made her successful at Oregon at the WNBA level. Um, she's six foot four at Oregon. She was the, the center, right? She was, she was clearly, you know, the largest player on the court. She was that player, that presence defensively, offensively. That's who she was. I think you get to the WNBA and that would be a little undersized and I've seen her kind of listed more as a power forward. So there might be some kind of concerns about, about that in terms of her, her height and, and how that translates. I think there might also be some concerns about like, you'd have to get the right setup here to maybe have the right pick and roll combination. And, and I don't want to say that Ruthie isn't a capable player without a pick and roll, but that was a huge part of her development over the last couple of years was having, I mean, you look at the field goal percentage. I mean, she made gosh, nearly 70% of her shots three straight years, and that was because they were pretty easy looks that she got off those rolls, and Sabrina's a great person to play with. Maite was great before that, 
um, even Mignon this year was able to kind of set her up a lot. So I think there's concerns about that, and I think there's also concerns about how she can defend at her size maybe a little bit. And we saw her have issues at times. You think about when they played some of those bigger teams in the tournament last year, whether it was Mississippi State or Baylor. I'm not saying she played poorly in those games, but she certainly had a hard time when they she faced up against a, a six foot seven or a six foot six center. Um, and, and she'll see a little bit more of that at the next level. But I still think she can be a really capable player. And I think offensively what she does, it will translate in terms of like, she's going to be able to score. Now it might not be in the pick and roll. It might not, she might be asked to do a little bit more back to the basket or maybe face up a little bit more, but um, I still think she's going to be effective. And I, I, I guess I am a little surprised that she's dropping as far as she had. I, I kind of maybe had thought she'd be like, pick five or six, but of the five I pulled up, they had her somewhere between seven and 11 in all of them. So that's kind of the range they're looking at right now. Um, regardless, I think she's going to have a, a very solid pro career. And then we should mention that Minyan Moore could also be drafted on Friday. Um, I think not nowhere near as much confidence that she's selected um, as there is that the other three are going to be first round picks. Wallace, a long ways away. I think there's really only one player that we know for certain is draft eligible, and that's Aaron Boley for the 2021 WNBA draft. What do you think her chances are where we could see back-to-back years in which Oregon produces a first-round draft pick? I would, I would be, I would take a lot for Aaron Boley to get to that place. I would think, um, I would think there'd be like a higher probability that maybe Oregon has a grad, a grad transfer that gets there than it would be that Boley's taking the first round. Um, I don't know. We also don't know because she's played such like a supplementary role at Oregon during her time here. And maybe she will settle into a more ball dominant role as kind of a leading offensive option this year and, and less of a kind of sit up in the corner or at the top of the key and, and get ready to shoot a three, which is kind of what she's been. I mean, she's kind of been that kind of put her in a spot on the court, pass her the ball, let her, let her get comfortable and, and knock down a jump shot. Maybe she can be a lot more than that. And if that's the case, maybe she does have a decent drop shot of being drafted. I think Oregon's still going to be a very, very competitive team um, next season. But I don't necessarily know if I look at Aaron Bull and think that's going to be a player that's going to be taken really high. Now, she certainly has a three-point ability to be a difference maker, and I'm going to guess she's going to have a, a WNBA future of some kind because of that. But um, she's going to have, I think, to show a little bit more. And then defensively in particular, is going to have to make some strides because I, I do think she can be kind of a liability out there at times. All right, now let's transition to the defense from an Oregon football standpoint. Last week we discussed kind of why we think Oregon's offense will be better or worse uh, than their 2019 counterpart. It's our turn now to do the defensive version of this. And I, I think, Eric, the first reason why Oregon fans could expect that their defense in, in 2020 is better than the 2020-19 counterpart, which, mind you, was really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, not just really good in the Pac-12, but really good in the entire country. Just from, you know, you look at the traditional stats, you know, scoring stats, they were ninth uh, in, in points allowed per game, total defense. Uh, they were in, I believe, the top 25 at 22 so yards per play, they were even better there, uh, 11th in the country. So this defense in 2019 was really good. And they have to say goodbye to Troy Dye after four years of starting in the middle. Yet I'm of the belief that the 2020 version of the Oregon defense, even with spring football being canceled 
and shut down after four practices, I think the 2020 version is going to be significantly better because of all the other surrounding pieces that are coming back that were around Troy Dye and the emergence of some fresh talent that either got their first licks last year or are coming into the program this this season as a newcomer. I think I think the 2020 version is going to be significantly better because the overall depth and the overall talent of the entire unit is going to significantly be better than it was last year and where it was the year before that and the year before that. I think Mario Cristobal has used this term a lot, but football is a developmental sport. And when you bring back 9 of 11 starters defensively and basically – outside of a couple defensive line reserves, all of your depth pieces too, especially you think about all the players at safety and corner that were playing last year that weren't starters. You think about the players, some players at linebacker that way and their development. I mean, everyone should, in theory, have gotten a little better with another year. And I know you lose Troy Dye, which is huge. You lose Bryson Young, who was, I think, maybe a little under a little underrated in terms of his contributions. I know the stats aren't huge, but he was a certainly a reliable part of that defense. But I'm with you, Matt, in terms of like everyone else should be a little a year better, a year older. Um, and I think that will come together. And I think the other thing that you have to be excited about is Andy Avalos is, was still kind of working uh, in year one last year, kind of just kind of figuring things out. And he obviously he'd been a defensive coordinator before, but he hadn't been a defensive coordinator with this team and with this personnel and, and kind of with, with what they were trying to do. I think you give him another year and he, and what he showed he could do in the first year at Oregon. And I think you have to be really optimistic about how he can just advance himself, uh, in this defense as a whole. And we already started to see them do some tweaks during spring. And obviously we didn't get to see a ton of it because it ended early, but, they were really trying to make a concerted effort to cross-train as many players in the defensive backfield as they could. Um, you know, Thomas Graham was playing different spots. We saw uh, a couple of days where Verone McKinley moved back to nickel. We saw Bennett Williams, I think, play both safety spots. I think that the ability to, to play those players at different spots, what that allows you to do is to potentially find some kind of creative packages where you can have seven maybe defensive backs on the field, you know, certain during certain plays, or, or maybe you spend more time in your dime packages than you have previously or whatnot. But I think you're going to be able to see them be more creative back there because Avalos is going to have more experience uh, and more, I guess, of a relationship with this roster to kind of build off of it. So certainly have to be excited just by what is coming back. And we talked about continuity on the men's basketball side earlier. That's exactly what you have defensively where you've got all of this ta- talent coming back, they seem to be cohesive. They played at such a high level last year. Um, and to me, there's just no reason why they shouldn't be significantly better. And I think the only reason would be is if they aren't very good at linebacker in the middle. But like you said earlier, they do bring in a couple of really exciting young players there that should kind of get things sorted out there. Might be a step up, you know, step down initially, but I do think there is potential for them to fill in really nicely there. I also wonder, I mean, I'm almost to the belief where, like, look, Troy Dye's gone, but Isaac Slade was was the the quarterback of the defense in 2019, the guy that set everything up, made the audibles, made the alignment checks, the adjustments, and all of that. Troy Dye did that the, the previous three years or two years because uh, his freshman year he was an outside linebacker. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've already got the jump there. So Isaac, you know, Isaac went through the battles of doing that and learning that last season as a redshirt sophomore. Now as a redshirt junior, he's gonna 
step up and I think have a have a really big year just because he's going to be asked to do more things. But the guys around him have also significantly improved in talent. Um, a primarily because Oregon signed the two greatest linebackers they've ever signed in program history and five stars, Justin Flo and Noah Sewell. I think both of those guys play a ton. I don't think both start. It wouldn't surprise me if, if neither of them started week one. Mm-hmm. I, I would probably say yes to them starting, but it wouldn't be, or one of them starting, but it wouldn't be that big of a shock if, if it was like a, um, Drew Mathis and uh, an Isaac Slade or an MJ Cunningham and an Isaac Slade or a Samson New, that's probably the most realistic one, and an Isaac Slade being the starters with Flo and so being the backups. But I think I'm to the point where I, I think the biggest determinant for the defense in 2020 might be just can they stay healthy? Like that might be the only thing in my mind that prevents this defense from being better statistically than they were last year just because of their health. Like they've got every position basically locked up with tons of talent and the only reason why I think they might not see success is injuries. And, and I think even with the injuries and there are certainly a couple of spots where the replacement wouldn't be even close to the starter. I, I think you look at, if you were to see like a Kayvon go down or a Jordan Scott go down sure. up front or a Javon Holland, I know they have talent back there go down. But there are certain, I think there are parts of this team where the depth is so good that, you know, and it's not maybe widespread where it's just eight out of, you know, eight or nine out of the 11 players are, are you know, their backup is pretty close to them. Maybe it's like five or six, but there are certainly parts in this team where they could maybe take an injury. Like, I think they could, if a player got knocked out for the season at safety or corner, that would absolutely stink. But they have the, the, the talent around them to potentially kind of fill in and it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Now, obviously you don't want anything like that to happen, but I, yeah, I think obviously injuries would, would be demoralizing and tough, but like there's talent and like they could play a group that is so talented where you lose a starter, you bring in another guy, and it doesn't feel like the end of the world. So um, I think the depth of this team needs to be appreciated and recognized as well. Um, because you're right, an injury could put you know could really turn things the other way. But at the same time, there are certain spots where you feel like, okay, you're going to lose this guy. We'll, we'll just insert this player who's very very talented and, and well, has had the opportunity. Like like let's look at the defensive backfield first. I think this is where you you feel probably the strongest of that nature here. Yeah. And this isn't to say that whoever I name is not a good player because he is, but it's more of a tip of the cap to the talent that's just behind them. Like let's let's just say Thomas Graham week one blows his knee out and is lost for the year. That's a that's a guy that was a four, would be a three year starter his first three years at Oregon and was entering his senior year as a guy going to be who is going to be a four-year starter for the Duck defense and a good one at that. This isn't just like a guy that's average and, and the secondary just hasn't been good. No, he he's got all, all conference honors to his name. He goes down with an injury. I don't necessarily think like I look at that and say like, wow, I feel awful for Thomas Graham. I feel awful that his senior season he he that he came back for instead of playing in the NFL doesn't play out the way that it should have 
that's awful for Thomas Graham. The Oregon defense, I look at it, okay, week two against Ohio State, that could be, that could be dicey, but week three, week four, week five, they're gonna be totally fine. They've got Michael Wright, who can slot right in. They have Diomede Lenore, who's gonna be a three-year starter as a senior on the other side. They have Dante Manning, a five-star cornerback coming into the program. They have multiple other redshirt freshmen or sophomores that were very talented in the limited amounts of, of playing time that they got in 2019 and showed that they were more than capable. They were just playing behind an NFL player in Thomas Graham. Like so it, That would suck for Thomas Graham, and I would feel awful for him, but the unit would continue to, to operate just as 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 good, if maybe marginally worse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that maybe that's one of the most exciting parts about this is you've got that top end NFL talent, but then you've got skill, you know, really, really high end young players that can fill in. And I still think we're going to have some really interesting position battles when we do have football resume at, at a variety of spots. I think the secondary in particular, you just ran that through a possibility of a player getting hurt. I still think we're going to have actual competition at, at those corner spots. I think we're going to have very intense competition for those starting safety spots when that comes together. And that's just a byproduct of having a lot of really talented players uh, in your secondary uh, and at other spots on the team that you're going to have competition even when you bring back 9 out of 11 starters. And in theory, and in, you know on paper, it doesn't seem like there should be much competition for these starting positions. Yeah, that's the crazy thing is that, you know, at safety, it's it's like – a, a guy that started his first three years in Nick Pickett or the Rose Bowl defensive MVP and Brady Brees, like one of those two guys might not be starting. Or let's throw in Rome McKinley, who started 10 games last year and was a freshman All-American. Yeah. He, he might not be starting at Oregon next year because the, the defense is so stacked in the secondary. And I think that's the feeling why both of us think this group could be better in 2020 than they were in 2019 as a whole defensive unit, just because outside of die and outside of, you know, Lamar Winston, who was an integral piece of this team as a reserve and a huge leader, vocal leader off the field. And, you know, Gus Cumberlander um, or Bryson Young, like those guys, Drayton Carlberg, like those guys had roles in the 2019 season and they had important roles, but the reality is, and, it's kind of cutthroat, but the reality is, is their production can easily be absorbed outside of Troy Dye, and Oregon's replacing Troy Dye by signing two five-star linebackers, like like the, not just two five-stars, but two best linebacker inside linebackers in their class. So I I think it's maybe it's just me, Eric. You know, you, you can t- chime in, but I, I I feel very definitively confident that this group is going to be better in 2020 than they were in, in 2019. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think you just look at it and say there's not a glaring weakness because so much is back and because last year they showed they didn't have very many weaknesses at all, so I think this is going to be a defense that is excellent against the run again, that is excellent against the pass again, that forces a lot of turnovers, that gets after the quarterback, um, and, and I, I, I mean, I'm I'm excited to see them play. I'm really, and again, don't want to harp on negative stuff, but the spring game would be this week, and that would have been really fun to kind of watch this defense come together and see how they'd perform on the field. Certainly will be fun to see what they look like whenever it is that they debut this fall. 
that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thank you for listening. For Eric Skolpo and myself, Matt Prane, we'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.